Hey, Chris, have you heard that the SEC Speaks is coming back to Washington, D.C. this April 2nd and 3rd? I did, and I'm very excited to be returning to, Kurt, one of the places where we've always found a lot of great content and a shared interest with both what PLI puts out as well as what we talk about here on the Insecurities Podcast. What I love about the program is that nowadays you can attend in person, of course, or online. It's an exciting event, regardless of how you get there. Kurt, I know you and I will be looking to be there in person and really hear some of the great discussion points about where the SEC has been in the past year and maybe where it's going. We hope to see you all there. To learn more about SEC Speaks in 2024, please go to pli.edu slash SEC Speaks. That's pli.edu slash SEC Speaks. And come find us in D.C. in early April. This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Rarely can you reflect on financial history and point to the moment, the actual day or time that a new movement began or era has started. When it comes to cryptocurrency, most point to the release of the white paper titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, published on October 31st, 2008, by the still unknown author or authors, the pseudonymous Satoshi Nakamoto. Much has changed in the world of crypto and finance since 2008, much of which we've discussed on past episodes of the Insecurities Podcast. Today, we look to reflect on more recent times in the crypto space with author Zeke Fox. His recent book, Number Go Up, outlines his journey of investigative journalism into some of crypto's weirder and wilder environments. To highlight my favorite passage from his book as follows, quote, I couldn't believe that every day people sent millions of perfectly good U.S. dollars to the inspector gadget creators Bahamian Bank in exchange for digital tokens conjured by the Mighty Ducks guy and run by executives who were targets of a U.S. criminal investigation, end quote. We look to pull back from crypto and hear more about Zeke's work as an investigative journalist, his assignment and travels that led to number go up, and his thoughts on the financial industry today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm flying solo today after you guys know Kurt has been rowing the heavy insecurities oar for the past few episodes. Regular listeners will know that cryptocurrency, digital assets, and the like have been a major topic in the security space for more than a decade, and also a frequent discussion point here on the podcast. For those who might be new to these concepts, feel free to go back and listen to episode 18 from DLT to ICO with Teresa Goody-Guillen, Usman Sheikh, and Jason Somensato. Episode 62, Bringing Order to the Regulatory Chaos for Crypto with Carla Caravo and Michael Liftick. Episode 88, Crypto Winter in Washington with Josh Rivera, or some of the more recent episodes recapping conferences and contemporaneous discussions, including comments from CFTC Commissioner Pham. But Kurt and I both obviously assume that all of you out there listen regularly, so on to our guest for today with a bit of his background. 
Zeke Fox is an investigative reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek and Bloomberg News and a former national fellow at New America. He's a winner of the Gerald Loeb Award and the American Bar Association Silver Gavel Award and a National Magazine Award finalist. His work has also appeared in New York Magazine and the anthologies The Year's Best Sports Writing and The Best Business Writing. The book Number Go Up has made the best book of the year lists at the Washington Post and the Financial Times, as well as this tiny internet bookseller you may have heard of called Amazon. Furthermore, the book Number Go Up was actually featured as an exhibit in the trial of a certain crypto exchange CEO, which we'll discuss today with Zeke. Zeke, welcome to Insecurities. Thanks a lot, Chris. Great to be here. Before we get into Number Go Up in the book, let's start with what the beginning has been for your career and, and for you, Zeke. How did you get involved in investigative journalism? Was this a passion of you since you were young, or did you find yourself kind of falling into this through other avenues? So I always loved storytelling. And as a teenager, I read books like John Krakauer's Into Thin Air about a disastrous expedition out up Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. or uh, Ben Mesrich bringing down the house about the MIT blackjack team that learned how to like beat the casinos for millions of dollars. And, but I don't think I ever thought that I could write something like that. Like I didn't like set out to do that. I, but I, I, I didn't even really know how to go about it. And Mm -hmm. so I got into journalism because I'm kind of a practical person And this was a career where there were jobs and I could get one. And it turned out (laughs) that the the place where there are the most jobs in journalism is actually business journalism. And I found myself writing about um, topics like corporate bonds or interest rates or structured notes and which keep a lot of lawyers employed. Good, good topics. And but... I found myself gravitating towards the shady side of Wall Street. It just wasn't my thing to meet with investment bankers and hear about their new bond offerings or their rivalries with other banks. I like to go. It turns out I'm in New York, and it turns out that New York's financial district is actually kind of a hotbed of of scammers. And right by the stock exchange. You you might think that this is where like the big Wall Street banks are, but they've all moved to Midtown. It's actually like a very low rent district. And there are these towers that are just filled with office after office of like boiler room operators, you know, crooked lawyers, essentially loan sharks, and I wrote one story about one boiler room and kind of got hooked. I met all of these guys. These are these are the guys that like they may have even worked in the office that you saw on the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> and now they're still kind of doing it and they're calling people up and being like, "Hey man, I'm sitting right next to the I'm right across I can see the stock exchange across from my window. This is this is a hot tip for you. You got to get in on this, you know, new penny stock." And so I spent years writing stories about people on this side of Wall Street. And my specialty was I'm 
I like to get them to talk to me and to tell their stories. And it's not that I'm going to pull my punches. Like I still want to write about what they're doing and show the details of how it works. But I sort of love a good trick. And if someone's figured out like this cool loophole and made a lot of money from it, I like to write about that person, how they came up with it and show how that loophole works. And if that results, as it often does, in the SEC looking into it or the loophole being closed by lawmakers or something like that, I mean, all the better. But but I want to have some fun with it first and tell the story of the person who who came up with the loophole. So I had a lot of people told me once crypto started coming along that this would be a great topic for me. That I should get into, I should investigate crypto. But I didn't really want to. I felt like it didn't have the same appeal as the stuff that I like to investigate. Like one of my favorite things I ever investigated was called um, death spiral financing mm-hmm. or toxic convertibles. And I was able to use everything I learned from my years of reading boring prospectuses to figure <laughs> out how this kid from Long Island had come up with a way to finance kind of failing penny stock companies and make a lot of money even as the stock crashed. And it was just like great loophole. It was all documented in securities filings. And with crypto, I I just saw a bunch of annoying bros being like, buy my coin, it's awesome. And then the coin would go up. And there's there no filings to go through. And sometimes they're not even making any claims that I could investigate. Mm-hmm. If someone just says, oh, my coin's the future of finance, how do I disprove that? <laughs> so <laughs> so, I, I, so I didn't think it was for me. Mm-hmm. And What time I, period was this at when you were kind of getting interested or, or being told that this might be an area for you? Uh, as we talked about up front, right? It's been an interesting, say, 15 or so years to walk the crypto path. I mean, it's, it's come up a bunch of times mm-hmm. and I just found it kind of impenetrable and as soon as it started booming again during the pandemic, people were coming to me with crypto story ideas. Excellent. And I also had this idea that, you know, the headline numbers are really big, but it was unclear to me at first whether there was really a lot of real money involved or not. And mm-hmm. then it started to become more and more clear that like, yes, people were getting rich in real money off crypto. And that those people even included my friends and neighbors. And yeah, right. I think the book kind of starts with a story of a, a good friend of yours making a few thousand dollars on a coin and going going on a trip, and that kind of being <laughs> maybe a point of pride for him, and maybe one that's a little bit less so for for everybody who missed the boat. Yeah, I think it's a lot of people have probably been in the situation where my, I mean, my I'm on a group chat with my friends from high school, and my this good friend of mine, a very smart, funny guy, started talking to me about what he called doggy coin. And <laughs> I, in the group, I like to think that I'm the expert on investments or at least on investment scams. You've read and all so, the prospectuses. You've got the background, right? Yeah. And uh, like, and I really, I don't know if I'm like a know-it-all, but I was happy mm-hmm. to share my expertise here. And I was like, I've seen this before. You know, I've looked into a million penny stocks. 
this there's not this doggy coin it's actually called dogecoin so That's right. you got to i'm the expert here and <laughs> I'm pronouncing it and we were talking about it on this kind of meta level like it wasn't like he was saying Doggy coin is the future of finance. Mm -hmm. He was like, I think this is going to get hot. I can see some chatter about it on Reddit. And I was saying, I don't think it's going to get hot. I think it's actually not very funny. The joke's played out. It'll never take off. And I've also seen this kind of stuff in the penny stock market before yeah. where people start talking about some hot stock. And it's actually very hard to predict which one's going to go up. When you think you're the smart one, a lot of times you're actually the sucker. Yeah. But in this case, my friend was right. It did start going up. He made all this money and he sent the group a text saying, I am freaking Nostradamus. <laughs> and he, he correctly pointed out that had we followed his advice, we could all have thousands of dollars and be yep. with him. He was at, at Disneyland right. where he had gone with his winnings. So... <laughs> I uh, one of the lesser extravagant stories, right, uh, of crypto riches, maybe, but one that really hit close close to home for you. And I think, too, one of the things you just touched on that that is a through point, at least that I picked up on in the book, is the difference between, I'll use this, this terminology, you, you can frame it however you like, the difference between believers and bros, right? There are individuals who consider, you've used the phrase, you know, the future of finance, right? There are folks and, and organizations and, and some of the people that we've talked about with on this podcast before that see a real use for a distributed ledger technology and, and digital assets to account for lead to value, serve as a currency in certain circumstances. And then there are a lot of folks, uh, many of which you outline through some of your interviews and your contacts in the book, who are along for the ride, right? Who are interested in, in buying Dogecoin at, at one one thousandth of a cent and it going up to one one hundredth of a cent and taking that money to Disneyland. Yes. And I think that actually, so to give a little overview of the book, yeah. I started out with this argument and this took me, I got sucked in and spent two years investigating the crypto world. And I, I spent lots of time with all of the biggest players, many of whom are now in jail or facing criminal charges or bankrupt or being sued or mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, the track record. It cannot be exaggerated how terrible the track record is for the most famous people in crypto in 2021 when I started looking into it. And so I think that one of my main questions from the start when I would meet these people would be, I was trying to sort out, are you just hoping that this mania will continue and that you will make money from coin prices going up? Or do you actually have some sort of product that will appeal to people and be useful and generate value in the long in the long run? And nobody or most of the big players in the space do not want to admit to being in group A. They don't want to mm -hmm. say, yes, I am just a degenerate gambler. But <laughs> what has been shown again and again, and I'm continually surprised and disappointed, is that so many of the people who said they weren't in group in the degenerate gambler group actually were. Mm -hmm. And a great example would be there was this hedge fund called Three Arrows Capital. And it was one of the biggest crypto hedge funds. And the guys who ran it were 
look to for their expertise on the markets and people really followed their predictions. Um, some of this stuff can be hard to believe now, but but people really look to these guys as experts who knew what was going on and what would happen with distributed ledger technology and the price of all these tokens. And it turned out that they had essentially borrowed as much money as they could, billions of dollars from all sorts of crypto lending companies and just gone super, super long on all of these crazy tokens and ended up losing when when prices started to go down. And then the lending companies, a lot of them had presented themselves as, as smart players who'd come up with interesting business plans. And it turned out that their whole business plan was just lend a billion dollars to Three Arrows Capital with no security and collect 10% interest. And I was there, you know, talking to all these guys in the mix in the summer of 2022 when this all kind of unwound and yeah. the truth about a lot of these companies was revealed. One of the tenants we talk about on the podcast a lot is that famous phrase, you can attribute it to whomever you want, Warren Buffett or others. Uh, when the tide goes out is when you see who's swimming naked. I think Kurt's a version of it is when the tide goes out, you see where the bodies are buried. Uh, I don't know if he always buries his enemies at sea, but that's kind of where we were right in the summer of 2022 in an environment of declining prices for many cryptocurrencies, you know, the headliners as well. And that led to, you know, the props that you just described that are standing up a lot of these businesses really, really falling apart. And so I think we're at an interesting time to reflect and, and the book number go up is, is, is timely, right? Both because of your reporting and also because of uh, what has transpired during that, that time period. One of the parts of the book that I thought that I was aware of, but hadn't spent a lot of time researching or, or you know, kind of getting on the ground of relates to the, I'll use the phrase NFT craze, you know, for about, I don't know, Zeke, you probably know better than me, 12, 16 months, teas were something that were top line on, on major news outlets related to finance, as well as investor strategies coming around, which NFTs were going to be more valuable than others. Like the shout out a good friend of mine who bought an NFT of the Ecto-1, the Ghostbusters uh, car that he now Ooh. puts around different places with an augmented reality app. So, uh, Sean, I hope that's paying off for you. But, uh, Zeke, your experience with NFTs is, is really, I think, super interesting, both in, in how it came about, what you were required to do to be a part of the community, and then some of the, the interesting things that happened after you, you literally joined that community. Yes. So, I was in the Bahamas. I was at Sam Bigman frieds big conference celebrating his success, Crypto Bahamas, April 2022. And I was meeting a lot of guys who'd made a lot of money on crypto. And when I would tell them about my project, a lot of them would make the same objection. They'd say, how can you write about crypto when you don't own any crypto? What do you know about crypto? And I would tell them, listen, most people like People who, buy, who write biographies of the president, they're usually not the president themselves. Like there's, there's something like sports writers, most of them couldn't hit a fastball. This is pretty yeah. normal. But <laughs> I, I did, they got to me. And I, I was trying to go to this one party for something called, um, oh man, what was it? Let me- Ape Fest? It, no, it's pre eight fest. Um, pre eight fest, gotcha. Okay, yeah. Sorry, let me just. This can this be one of these rewind uh, you moments? You got it. Yeah, we'll start okay. it over. <laughs> so, at Crypto Bahamas, 
there was a party for something called Solana Monkey Business. And this Solana Monkey Business was an NFT that lived on the Solana blockchain. And it looked kind of like a monkey that would have been like an enemy in Mario Brothers for NES. It was like a little <laughs> pixelated monkey head. And I said, can I come to your party and write about it? You know, a lot of people would invite a journalist, get more attention, help the value yep. of the pixelated monkey heads. But this person said, no, you must buy one. This is only for members of the Solana Monkey Business Club. And to get one of these monkey business club heads cost $25,000. And I, what the guy said, though, was that if you don't have money at stake and if you don't experience the highs and lows, you don't really know what cryptocurrency is all about. And mm -hmm. I started to think, you know, because I'd, I'd spent like a year trying to figure out what the point of this all was and I was having trouble. And I was thinking, you know, maybe this guy has a point. Maybe I should, I should try it out. But I knew enough about crypto at this point to know that Solana monkey business was just a weak knockoff of a more popular NFT called Board Ape Yacht Club. This was the one that all the celebrities had. You got uh, Jimmy Fallon had had Paris Hilton on his show and it showed off their Board Ape Yacht Clubs. And these were ugly cartoons of apes wearing silly shirts and hats. And it turned out that soon after my return from the Bahamas, the Board Ape Yacht Club was hosting Ape Fest, a week-long party only for ape owners in New York, very convenient for me. But there, there was a problem, which was that the cheapest board apes cost around $500,000 at the time. And like, if you didn't look into this, I just want to explain what you get for $500,000. So this is like a pretty ugly cartoon that doesn't distinguish itself that much. There are 10,000 of them. Uh, they all look kind of the same, but with different hats and stuff different color backgrounds. So if you pay $500,000, then it's not that like this cartoon will live on your computer and no one else can see it. It's still on the internet for all to see. Anyone can look at it or download it to their computer. But on the blockchain, which is like this big database, it will be recorded that you are the owner of this cartoon. So, and like, that's it. That's what you get. You just get to tell people that you're the owner. So after researching this a bit, I found out that you could still go to the party if you had a mutant ape. This is like an ape derivative. And in the ape lore, the bored apes drank some sort of potion and then it melted their skin and they became very ugly. They looked like they had survived a nuclear holocaust or something like that. And these bored apes, the cheapest ones, are mutant apes, the cheapest ones were $40,000 and they still got you in. And I'd gotten in advance to write the book. And I was like, you know what? This is like the most elite NFT party. If there's something to crypto, maybe it'll be in this party. I got to see it. I'm buying one of these. And also, I mean, I'm thinking, look, people do buy and sell them all day. I will be able to sell it afterwards. And I'll probably lose some money due to transaction costs, but not that much. And I'll be okay. So after a very awkward 
conversation with my wife who <laughs> who said, "All right, go ahead." Wow. I I went to I went to go buy one. And what I learned is that first, even though I knew in my head that these people traded these every day, as soon as I acquired it, I be I started to feel in my heart like no one would ever be stupid enough to buy this cartoon from me <laughs> and that I would be stuck with it and I would lose everything that I paid, which was only 20,000 because the prices had crashed by the time I went around to click to click buy. Um, maybe not a, maybe not a good indicator for your your personal right. transaction there. It was like a bad sign although I did like it cuz I really didn't want to spend 40,000. So yes. it was good that it was down <laughs> but also a bad sign. And what was actually surprisingly revealing about this, like the guy had told me if you don't do it you don't understand. And he actually was right. But what I learned was not the lesson he wanted. What I, it was actually excruciatingly difficult to send my $20,000 into the crypto world and acquire this ugly cartoon. Like you'd think they would want to make it easy for me, but no. That was one of my favorite parts of the book. And for those of you who have not read it, I would encourage you if you have not bought and sold NFTs or, or crypto on your own, it is a great kind of rundown. Literally the point and click uh, of how to purchase a, a melting face ape, which may not yeah. sound like a lot now, but like we talked about, was definitely a a hot button issue uh, a year or two ago. Yeah, it was a bit, I don't know how I feel about this. I mean, I, at another point in the book, may I go to like, I get talk myself my way into Sam Bankman Fried's house just before he got arrested. But a lot of people's favorite part of the book is just like a very detailed description <laughs> of me clicking different places to buy this mutant ape. That tutorial uh, is very helpful for uh, all the steps uh, you need. Yeah, just like a short version of this I will, is that, which this was all news to me, even though I'd spent a year looking into crypto and mm-hmm. I knew it would be kind of annoying. It was just so much worse than I thought. Your, your ape will live in a browser extension. So this is like, you've got the box where you type the URL, then maybe you have the stop sign for ad block if you're like me. Then this, if you want to do crypto, you get a new one that's a picture of a fox head and the ape's going to go in there and... In order to, when you install the fox head, they make you watch a video. And a video is like, because a lot of people have complaints about their apes getting lost. This is a real problem or Mm -hmm. stolen. And the fox head people know about this. So they're like, watch this video. And the video says, you got to write down your password. Not not write, don't write down your password. That would be bad. Because someone might find it and steal your your $20,000 ape. Engrave your password onto a metal plate. And bury this in your backyard. And this will be how you keep your ape safe. I, d- I did not do that. <laughs> but yeah, and then I, I, when I got to the ape fest, I met, I realized yet another problem with, with this whole NFT concept, which is that you buy these to be cool, right? But to my friends who did not have them, buying an ape did not make me cool. They were all like, did you get hacked? What's wrong with you? Why would you spend $20,000? Like when I texted them, they're like, is this still you? Yeah. Are you like, what's wrong? And my mom was like, uh, my mom just sent me back. The I sent her a picture of the ape and she just sent it back. And she was like, in what way do you own this ape? I, I have it on my phone too. And I was like, mom, check the blockchain. But <laughs> she didn't... I don't she know how advanced well, she no, your mom is in, in crypto yeah. investigation, but I'm, I'm guessing she did not find your line related to that mutant. 
She didn't care. And then you get to Ape Fest. Everybody's got apes. So I wasn't cool there either. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was a loser there because I'd only spent $20,000 and a lot of people had million dollar apes. And nobody really wanted to see my ape. Even I did, I did see Snoop there, Eminem. And I was able to confront Jimmy Fallon about his endorsement of the board apes. Even he, you have to sort of pretend to care about people's apes. It's part of being in the club. Mm. So I would flash my ape and people would be like, oh, that's cool. But I knew what they were thinking. They're yeah, thinking a that's a $20,000 ape. Right? ape. Get out of here. <laughs> I don't even know why I would let you in. And I, I feel like that was Jimmy Fallon's attitude too. I liked from, just to read quickly from the book here about kind of that ape a differential. Uh, Sotheby's auctioned a bored ape with gold-colored fur. And, and Sotheby's is, is quoted here saying, less than 1% of all bored apes have the gold fur trait, making it an NFT with historical significance. Uh, Sotheby's then ended up selling that ape for $3.4 million, So a little bit more uh, than probably that conversation with your wife would have allowed uh, to get uh, that gold fur trait. Yes. And... <laughs> I mean, when you're reading this, even now, I I mean, I was there for all this and I'm thinking, did this really happen? This is Mm -hmm. so dumb. I can't believe this really happened, but it did. And uh, board ape prices have crashed. They've continued to crash. But believe it or not, now mutant apes still go for like $5,000. That's still quite a lot. Like yeah, who's I think buying thankfully, them now? Uh, to spoiler alert to those who haven't read the book, I think, Zeke, you made out relatively okay, right? You mentioned the transaction cost before, but I think saying that that was an even trade for you probably uh, is a fair assessment. Yeah, so I unloaded it as quickly as possible, and I ended up losing, I sold it on the last day of ApeFest, and I ended up losing about $2,000, but most of that was due to transaction costs. And also mm-hmm. my impatience at selling it. So I, I had posted it. I had made sure when I posted it that I was just below the lowest price already posted so that mine would be the first to sell. Because I was yeah. not hanging around to see what happened. Yeah. I had to get... Like every morning I would wake up and I'd be like, this is... Okay, this was the problem. Everyone's telling me if you, you're going to get hacked, someone's going to steal your board ape. It was happening to so many... Seth Green, the actor, he mm-hmm. lost he lost 300 grand. Somebody hacked it. And the... The way it gets hacked is you click some bad link and then your ape is gone. And so I to combat this, instead of burying the password in the backyard, I just turned my computer off. I was like, if the computer's off, you can't click bad links. Yeah. But then I really wanted to turn it on to see what the ape prices were and if they'd crashed again. <laughs> so every morning I just wake up and be like, don't turn on the computer. But what if they have they crashed? Do I have, and it was horrible. The I was so, such a relief to get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 great. And I, I also like in the book, too, that you kind of take a tact between those we'll call extreme or, or even hyperbolic examples of where digital asset cryptocurrency culture takes you in the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book, you get into some of your reporting around some of the darker sides of the use of cryptocurrencies for fraudulent purposes. Talk to us about your reporting in in, in specific regions of the world and, and what you, you saw and lived through. And and first off, kind of how you got connected to, to the, the scam side of it. So you hear a lot about crypto being used by criminals. And it's just sort of like, the a lot of chatter in whenever you're talking about crypto. 
But it's not like these people are coming to the crypto conferences and telling you about how, you know, crypto is great for moving their drug money or Mm -hmm. for violating sanctions. And I mean, I had seen this one example. You get these very tantalizing tidbits in court cases. There was one where a sanctioned Russian was buying Venezuelan oil and he was arrested and the DOJ released some of his text messages that they'd intercepted as part of the criminal case. And in one of these messages, he's telling his contact that they should use a cryptocurrency called Tether to do the transaction. And he's like, it's so great. You, it's instant. It's like email, but it moves money. Everybody's doing it. So I was intrigued to learn more about this, but I wasn't sure how to go about it. And then I got this text message, mysterious text message. And it was not addressed to me. It was like, hey, Steve, did you pick up the milk on your way home or something like that? And like a lot of people get these, you know, I've, you probably got one yourself. Uh, within the past week, I have been yeah. called Louisa uh, and asked how the party was last week. I did not go to a party last week. Yeah. <laughs> so I played along and the person, the way these scams work is the person will apologize for the wrong number. They'll ask if they can be friends and they'll just start chatting you up. And it might not be apparent immediately why they're doing this, but they will, my person used the name Vicky Ho that was is definitely made up. And they sent a picture of like an attractive young Asian woman. And this so-called Vicky started dropping hints that she was very wealthy. She didn't really have to work very much. And that this was due to a relative who had taught her uh, the secrets of crypto trading. And, but it wasn't like this was the only thing she talked about. I mean, she'd be like, good morning. How are you? How was your day? Oh, you have a very cool name. I think she said to yeah. you at some point. Yeah. And <laughs> I had heard about these kinds of scams and I was sort of like, this could be my chance to see how they work. But it took, it took like a week to get her to scam me. Yeah. She just, she just wanted to establish this rapport first, but eventually she had me and she had me download a what she said was a crypto trading app. And then she said that I should download a, um, an American crypto trading app. She was like, I have like this special app. You need to go into like a regular crypto trading app, acquire some of this currency called Tether, and then you can send it to this address. It'll be deposited in our special app, and then I can teach you our special trades. And she had promised that each trade could produce a 20% gain or more. And we, we this went on for a while, but eventually I decided that I started to feel bad about leading, leading this person on. And I told them, after I sent a hundred bucks, I told them, I'm an investigative reporter writing a book about this. Would you be willing to you know, speak to me off the record? And they disappeared. Yeah, I mean, I'd really encourage everybody to read the book just to see kind of where 
these types of scams come from, right? And, and it's one of the other things we talk about on the podcast all the time. Never click the link, <laughs> right? Or, or you know, call the number for the bank that you have written down, not the one that they email you with. But those are really kind of some of the strategies that are outlined in, in your reporting, Zeke, that are followed here using crypto as a medium for and, some of the same scams that work from, you know, phone dialing in the 90s or, or you know, mailings back in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. And what makes crypto so great for this? Because crypto people will say, will point that out and say, this isn't crypto's fault. These scams have been around forever, which is true. But try sending a wire transfer to a Chinese gangster in Cambodia. Like how many times are you going to be able to do that before Bank of America calls you and mm -hmm. is like, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, it's going to be that they'll call you the first time. They'll warn you about it. Mm -hmm. And or if you sent the money by, I mean, people do scams with, with credit cards. It happens, right? But there's chargebacks. The merchant account, the scammer would have to have a merchant account opened under false pretenses. And that merchant account would get flagged for the high volume of fraud. And these, the traditional financial system isn't perfect, but it has all these systems to detect scams and money laundering. And those systems do work. And even if the scammers try to cover their tracks, they're, if they even, let's say they recruit money mules to help them move money and to open accounts at banks, well, those people could be caught, they could be arrested, and they could provide information about the scammers. With crypto, there's no need for any of that. When I sent my 100 tethers to Vicky, made up Vicky Ho, yep. I mean, it was just like Zap. I mm -hmm. didn't have to know their real name. I didn't have to provide my name. It's instant. My hundred bucks just went from me to I had reason to believe there in Cambodia. It went right over there instantly with no refunds. So, like, yes, these scams existed before crypto. Yeah, it's a different avenue, right? Avoiding some of those things you talked about. And I think that goes back to maybe your original interest in kind of the financial activities, right? Those loopholes, those nuances that create the abilities for individuals or business or you know bad actors to to develop these ideas some uh, like you talked about some of the uh, the death spiral type work maybe falls a little bit closer on the legality side right to the letter of the law maybe than the spirit versus some of the scams uh, we've seen here Whoa. but see I, I don't want to take the whole episode just to talk about the bad parts about crypto and i think you know you've you've had a great view in the past 2 years of reporting that's led to this book what are some of the outcomes you think are, are meaningful, right, for the crypto uh, world? Or where do you see it going uh, besides melted-faced apes? Uh, you know, what do you see as maybe some of the uses or, or good case scenarios for crypto going forward? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty down on crypto in yeah. general. I think, like, Amazon filed number go up as a, it was a, like, top pick in history. And I like that. I think this is, like, I've <laughs> chronicled, like, yeah, I've chronicled a moment in time that we will, I think our grandkids will, it was a big enough deal that our grandkids will hear about it and they will laugh about it. And they will say, Poppy, why did Justin Bieber pay $2 million for an ape cartoon? And I will say, it's very complicated, but I actually wrote a whole book that <laughs> kind of in an indirect way explains it. So you might want to uh, mm -hmm. check it out. But I, so, and what I'll say is that I, I would I really talked to a lot of people about their apps, their their new blockchains, their new coins and like what they were good for. And I did not 
find anything that was that promising. Like given the huge number of people, smart people that have spent so much effort on crypto, it's actually amazing to me how little they've come up with that's valuable. And I think a lot of people are so caught up in the crypto world. Like the the people who I I see as like smart and well-intentioned, they're so caught up in the crypto world and coming up with ways to like, you know, cross-lend coins from one blockchain to another that they do not really stop to think what is the product that will appeal to a regular person. And I mean, I have a friend who works on blockchain for banks. Has It's going to help like settle bond trades or something like mm-hmm. that. And that is actually so divorced from crypto and what the crypto people think of as blockchain that even if it's successful, it might not have anything to do with like the crypto that we're talking about. It might just be sort of a different kind of database technology for banks. And so I think even I'm skeptical, even of I'm not someone who's like, oh, the blockchain, that could be good too. No, I'm skeptical of that too. But even in the event that it succeeds, it may not result in anything that great for like the coins that that we're talking about. And crypto, I mean, you mentioned before, it's been around. You know, it's as old as Uber, it's mm-hmm. as old as WhatsApp. Like and, the iPhone 3 was out when the, the Satoshi's paper was written. Yeah. And uh, so I I think those a, a successful product does not need to be promoted like, you know, a multi-level marketing opportunity. Like Uber sold itself. It was great. It was a big improvement. And I think what actually something that demonstrates some of the lack of appeal of crypto is look at chat GPT. They... Some people, there's a lot of froth around AI. Probably many of the AI companies are overhyped too. But at the center of it is this product that tons and tons of people downloaded and actually used right away. And with crypto, the only thing people were using it for was buying coins and hoping that they will go up. So I think that if the coins are going down, it's much less fun and the appeal is going to be limited. Well, I think you you hit the nail on the head too when you talk about fun and appeal. You know, your reference to your friend, you know, there's nothing more boring than a database for a bank, right? If that's the <laughs> the end use, we were missing out on the kind of the sex appeal that maybe has drawn a lot of uh, attention and conversation around it. So, but time will tell, right? I, I hope that you do get to have Poppy's, uh, you know, corner and talk about some of the reporting you've done with with your grandkids down the road and and I know we'll be following your reporting, you know, ongoing, right? This is a, a story that I'm sure is is going to continue to develop and, and our listeners will continue to be interested in. So, yeah, thank you. And I mean, I should say, like, even after all this coin prices in the last month or so going back up, yep. you know, it's uh, it's definitely for for those out there who are interested, definitely pay some attention to the prices, to the market. And please, and go pick up a copy of Number Go Up. I've I read the book. I really enjoyed it, Zeke. I think your reporting style and, and the manner in which you kind of had the reader come along with you and all these steps are really made for an entertaining and informative read. So thanks for your hard work and thanks for joining us here on the Insecurities Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Great, great talking with you. 
For those looking for more from Zeke, you can check out his website, www.zekefox.com. That's Z-E-K-E-F-A-U-X.com. You can also find his reporting on Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Business Week. We're really glad to have him join us today and, and for an episode of Insecurities. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Zeke Fox of Bloomberg Business Week. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA and Kurt at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.